Okay, everyone, let's go ahead and, and jump into the class. We got a lot to talk about, so we need to go ahead and get started. As people go to the restroom, that's certainly fine. Uh, but we need to go ahead and uh, jump, go ahead and get started. This morning, we are continuing with our series of lessons entitled The Last Week of Jesus Christ. We're going to be on lesson four in the workbook, if you remember, and you have not yet received one of these workbooks. Uh, Brother Chad is standing at the door right there. Just raise your hand and Chad, Brother Chad will, will graciously bring you a book if you're visiting with us. Uh, just for today, we certainly, I think, have just copies of the lesson, lesson four, for you to follow with us today. We are in lesson four of the last week of Christ workbook. Today our lesson is going to focus um, a lot on the interaction of, of Jesus with the Jewish leaders. If you notice your schedule, uh, in the front of your book, you see that we're actually going to spend uh, about three classes talking about these next couple of lessons because there's a lot that goes on. We obviously won't be able to cover everything, but we're going to do the best we can to, to, to try to look at a, a pretty good bit of it. Before we dive into it, let's have a prayer. Almighty God, thank you, Father, for this opportunity you've given us to, to come together this morning, worship and grow and study. We're so thankful for the blessing that we've received to have the freedom to study without fear of persecution from our government. We're so thankful for that, Father. Uh, we pray that we will be made more like Jesus after this study, that we'll draw closer to Jesus, that we'll all stay with open hearts and open minds. Father, and just glorify you with this Bible study, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at the review chart. I want to kind of just go back and say a few things about Monday a little bit. Saturday, remember the key event there, the anointing of Jesus in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Mary anointed him was a very expensive perfume that got Judas very upset and that really kind of was the, the seed that was planted there. They got Judas, Judas really looking to get back at Jesus and, and he went out to start collaborating with the, with the Jewish leaders. Sunday Jesus, the key event there is Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's praised as he enters into Jerusalem by many of the Jewish people. Many of the same people who knew about him raising Lazarus from the dead. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem because he knew that for the most part, the people of the city had rejected him. The Jewish people had rejected him. And as a result, they were going to receive judgment from God. Judgment that would take place about 40 years later. And then Monday, we looked at the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Today we want to look at the teaching that Jesus does in the temple because a lot of Jesus' work during this last week takes place at the temple. He goes back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem to the temple. And as he goes to the temple each day, he gets into a lot of conflicts, debates, uh, even arguments uh, with the religious leaders. So before we jump into that and really look at what happened on, on Tuesday, let's, let's just make sure our heads are on, are on straight with Monday. Remember on Monday, there were really three things as far as the Monday of Jesus last week. On this Monday, there were three things we wanted to focus on. 
the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and the judgment of God on Israel, or the prediction of the judgment of God on Israel. On Monday morning, Jesus began making his way back to Jerusalem. Sunday, remember, he goes to Jerusalem, he looks at the temple, spends some time at the temple, goes back to Bethany. Spends some, the night at Bethany uh, with his friends, then Monday morning we're going back to Jerusalem. About a couple of miles walk. And as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, he gets hungry. He gets hungry and he goes to a fig tree. And the Bible says he expected to find something on the tree, but there wasn't anything there but what? The leaves. Only the leaves were there. Only the leaves were there, even though it wasn't the season for figs, Jesus was anticipating finding something. Well, we studied how the thing Jesus was expecting to find was the Breba. The Breba was supposed to be there. The common fig tree produces two kinds of fruit each year. The Breba, which grows around March and April, that's around the time of the year Jesus was crucified, and the standard fig. The Breba always comes first. It grows when the tree is putting out its leaves. Remember, the scripture says the tree was putting out leaves. It wasn't the season for figs, but it was leaving out, and Jesus expected to find something there. He was expecting to find the Breba. The first century audience of Mark clearly would have recognized that. The Breba is edible, but it's often ignored. It's ignored because it didn't taste that, that good. Usually it was reserved for poor people and animals. When it doesn't grow, you're not going to get the main thing you want, which is the standard fig. When the Breba doesn't come first, that means you got an unfruitful tree. That standard fig's not going to come a few months down the line. Since the tree had leaved out, the Breba should have been there. Since it wasn't, this was a fruitless tree. But not only was it a fruitless tree, <laughs> Jesus, on top of that, cursed the tree. If you look back at what the scripture says, going back to Mark 11, go back to Mark chapter 11 again, and in verse number 14. In Mark 11 and verse 14, Jesus said to the tree, the poor tree that was unfruitful already, he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He cursed it. And his disciples were listening. Now when you keep reading, you see that this Cursing of the fig tree wasn't just something that Jesus was doing because he was just mad at the tree and he had uncontrolled anger. No, Jesus is demonstrating something. He's teaching a lesson. The cursing of the fig tree. The cursed fig tree represented the nation of Israel. Israel was the fig tree that was no longer bearing fruit for God. Israel was the tree that was no longer pleasing to the Lord. The fruitless fig tree represented the nation of Israel. They were a fruitless people at this time, and because of their fruitlessness, God was going to bring judgment on them. They were going to receive judgment from God. They would be done away with as a nation. They would one day never again be able to bear fruit, just like that tree. 
See, just like this tree was unfruitful, Israel was unfruitful. And just like this tree would never again bear fruit, Israel would one day be destroyed and never again be able to bear fruit. Their time would be up. They were a fruitless nation like the tree. And Mark shows us just how fruitless they were in the next few verses when he takes us to the temple with Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He already knows what he's going to see when he gets there. He's God. But he curses the fig tree first. And he says, you will never again bear fruit. That represented God's relationship with Israel. And to demonstrate just how Israel had become like that tree, Mark takes us to the temple with Jesus. And when Jesus gets to the temple, he sees some just, just ungodly things taking place. He sees many of the Jews turning the Lord's temple into a literal flea market. A literal flea market. There were animals all over the place. They were buying and selling animals, exchanging currency. All this was probably taking place at the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus was very upset. They had perverted the house of God. The house of God was not a place to conduct that kind of business. There's nothing sinful without, about doing those kinds of things. It just wasn't to be done at the temple. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship. They had turned it into a robber's den, which means not only were they conducting business, but they were cheating people, the foreigners who had come into Jerusalem. And so Jesus demonstrates righteous indignation. Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and he runs the animals out of that area. He causes a big scene. This is a big scene taking place at the most important facility for the Jews, the temple. And, and look at verse 18. I mean, this was so bad. This was so bad. The verse 18 says the chief priests and the scribes heard this. And they began seeking how to destroy him. That's how mad they were about this. But they were afraid to do anything. Why? Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus had influence with the people. And they knew things would have gotten worse at the temple had they tried to seize him there and kill him there. Because a lot of people respected Jesus. Keep in mind, he had this triumphal entry just the day prior. So we can't, we can't do anything about this now. And this is why what, what, what Judas gives them later, this avenue he gives them later, it's exactly what they were looking for, an opportunity to get him alone and in private so there's no conflict among the people. And so they're upset with Jesus. The pot is boiling. It's boiling. I mean, think about just over the last 48 hours, all the things Jesus has done that's gotten these guys really upset. There's a reason why Jesus had to stay away from Jerusalem for three years. Couldn't go there. He wouldn't have made it three years. First, you got the raising of Lazarus. And everybody around that area is knowing about this, and they're following Jesus as a result. The religious leaders don't like that. Remember, they were so upset about that that John 11 says they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. So that's that strike number one. 
Strike two is this great welcome he receives coming into Jerusalem. The people praising him, throwing palm trees in the road, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king of Israel. Remember, some of the Pharisees saw that and asked Jesus to shut those people up. Why are you letting them praise you like that? That's strike two. They ain't like that. And then here at the temple, Jesus, in their minds, just straight embarrasses them, makes them look bad, doing something that they really should have been doing, which is cleaning up that mess. These men had perverted the temple of God, and Jesus took care of it. He wasn't like the other people and afraid of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. Jesus says, if nobody will do anything about this, I'll do it myself. So that made them look real bad. Because that was a rebuke, really, or an expo that was an act that exposed their bad leadership. So they didn't like that. The pot is boiling. It is boiling. And really noticing that stuff, really noticing, paying attention to how they did not like the resurrection of Lazarus and the results of that. They didn't like what they saw at the triumphal entry. They didn't like what they saw with the temple cleansing. Understanding that stuff and really noticing that helps you see how we're getting from, to, from Saturday to what happens Thursday night and then Friday. It's escalating every day. The more Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the more these men start hating him and want to get rid of him. It's really important to see that. So let's move on. Got a lot more to talk about. Let's go to Tuesday. A lot happens on Tuesday. Have you noticed that? Tuesday's a loaded day. Loaded, loaded day. So let's look at what we want to, the preview slides we want to look at concerning this day. Want to look at the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus Christ. We want to look at the attempted traps of the religious leaders. They're going to try to trap him over and over again in an effort to get the people to turn on him. So if they can get the people to turn on him, then they'll have an easier time in their minds arresting him and killing him. Right now, the people respect him too much. So they got to diminish his influence, make him look bad. Do something to make the people turn on him. And then there's something to be said about the giving of a poor widow. Uh, that is also found in the gospel and Jesus makes mention of. Some other interesting things we also want to consider is this. Things are very hostile for Jesus in Jerusalem. That's pretty obvious, right? Things are getting very hostile in Jerusalem. But remember, Jesus goes to Jerusalem because it's time. It's time to die. They didn't take his life. He freely gave it up, right? Jesus said that. So, all this is, they're only doing what they're doing because God is allowing it to take place. Because he's thinking about our souls and saving us from our sins. But things are hostile for the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Lord, no matter how many times they try to trap him up or trip him up, have you noticed how he's never called unprepared? He always says the right thing. He always turns the tables and makes them look foolish. He never looks foolish. And then some very unlikely alliances are made on this last week. Really over the last three years, some alliances that would have never taken place if it wasn't for Jesus and the hatred these men have for Jesus. And so let's go to Mark chapter 11. Let's read some scripture. I want to start with verse number 20. We're going to take our time over the next few classes. 
and, and really appreciate a lot of these things. We start with Mark 11 and verse 20. Okay, so it says, as they were passing by in the morning, this is the next morning, Tuesday morning, this is the day after Jesus cursed the fig tree, after the, the uproar that took place over the temple cleansing. They saw the fig tree, this is that same fig tree, they're going back to Jerusalem again, withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered. There's that fig tree again. Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not have doubt in his heart, but, be but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, the apostles, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who's in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who's in heaven forgive your transgressions. They came again to Jerusalem. We're back at Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came and said to, came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why should I believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, let's go to the book. First question there. Looking at the first question, lesson four. What did the disciples see when they passed by the fig, the cursed fig tree, the, the tree that was cursed the day before? Well, they saw, according to verse 20, that it had been withered. A miracle had taken place, right? That's a miracle. Jesus said a few words to the fig tree. He cursed it, and the next morning when they're passing by it, it is cursed. It's withered. It will never bear fruit, fruit again, just like Jesus said. Question two, what lessons were the disciples to take away from the withered tree? Well, there are at least three lessons, so hang with me. Hang with me. There's a lesson about faith. Verse 22, have faith in God. The apostles needed to have faith if they were going to be successful in the work that they were going to do as special ambassadors after the Lord was gone. They were going to need faith. They were going to need faith to move this mountain. It is my understanding that the mountain that Jesus is referring to there is the mountain that the temple was built upon. That mountain. You're going to need faith if you're going to move that mountain. It is a reference to the mountain of the temple. The temple was very likely built on Mount Moriah. 
Do you remember Mount Moriah from the Old Testament? Who was offered up as a sacrifice almost by his father at Mount Moriah? Isaac. Isaac was almost offered up to God by his father near Mount Moriah. Jesus was offered up to God near Mount Moriah. The temple was built on Mount Moriah. It was built on a mountain. You see, by having faith, and listen to me carefully, please. By having faith in the gospel as they preached it, the apostles would be casting Judaism into the sea. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. By having faith in the gospel and in God as they preached it, the apostles will be casting that mountain into the sea. They will be casting Judaism. And the temple's a symbol for Judaism. They would be casting it into the sea. They would be participating in overthrowing the Jewish system. They would be participating in overthrowing the temple system. They would be participating in overthrowing the system that would be at war with Christianity for several years. And that what we find in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the, the, the apostles are out preaching. They're doing miracles. But who is the main one opposing them? Who's the main group of people opposing them in Acts? The Judaizers. The Jewish system, remember, the, the main conflict in Acts is many of the Jews don't like the fact that the gospel is being preached. They don't like the fact that the apostles are preaching about this kingdom that Gentiles can even enter into. Judaism and Christianity are in conflict with one another throughout the book of Acts. And through the work of the apostles and their faith in God, Judaism was going to be done away with. Christianity would prevail. Judaism would die. That mountain would be cast into the sea. The apostles needed faith that they were going to accomplish that mission. And, 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 and in case you think I'm just making this up, all I'm doing is studying the Bible in its context. Remember the context. What's the context? The fig tree. And in the, in the fig tree, the context? We come back to the fig tree the next morning. The fig tree represents Israel and, and how they're not bearing fruit. Peter says, look, Lord, look at that fig tree. And then Jesus starts teaching them what that's all about. It's all about Israel. It's all about casting Judaism and the nation of Israel into the sea. And you're going to need faith if you're going to do that. You're going to need faith if we're going to overthrow this system. And the apostles had that. This is where understanding biblical geography really helps. Remember, I did a whole series of lessons on biblical geography. When you understand that the temple, and Jesus is probably pointing at the temple. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's pointing at the temple. Because they're making their way from Bethany, and everybody can see the temple from Bethany. It's only two miles away. Jesus is saying to them, picture that. Faith, you need faith. Because if you have faith, you can cast that mountain into the sea. Understanding that is very helpful. They needed faith in their preaching. But not only did they need faith when it came to preaching the gospel, they also would need faith when it came to confirming the gospel, right? They needed faith, they needed faith for that too. So I wanna, I wanna show you something. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 17. You can keep your finger in Mark 11. 
Look at Matthew 17. You remember this here? Remember in the first part of Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. He's transfigured and Moses and Elijah are there. And, and God speaks from heaven. Well, in verse 14, it says, when he came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. and He's very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive him out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. For this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, question. Is this the same context as Mark 11? No, it's not the same context. This is not the same context. Jesus here, at this time, he's not making his way from Bethany into Jerusalem. In this context, it's not Tuesday morning on the week of crucifixion. The reason I'm bringing that up is because Jesus' use of the word mountain here is different than the use of it later. Does that make sense how you can use an illustration in different ways? That's what Jesus is doing. So you have mountain in Mark 11 being used in a literal way, I believe, to talk about the mountain the temple was on. But here, the mountain is very likely in context a reference to the miraculous kind of faith the apostles would need to do God's work. You see, the reason why they couldn't cast this demon out is because their faith wasn't strong enough. They didn't have that kind of miraculous faith they would need to, to later confirm God's word through their preaching and through their, and through their miracles. That makes sense. Right now, they're not ready. They don't have the kind of faith needed, but they will get it later. When we read the book of Acts, we find the apostles doing all kind of, uh, of miracles, and they only were able to do those miracles by the power of God and because they had faith in the promises of God. And so in Acts, we read about them uh, casting demons out of people. We read about them raising dead people. We read about them speaking in tongues. We read about them prophesying. We read about them doing all these miracles throughout the book of Acts. And remember, the main purpose of the apostles performing the miracles, according to Hebrews 2 and verse number 4, was to confirm the word. It was to confirm that they were, in fact, messengers of God. And so what I just want you to see is... When it came to faith, the apostles especially, and don't misunderstand, we need faith too, but I'm just trying to keep these verses in context. There's principles we can take from this, but the primary teaching is going to the apostles. They needed faith that would move mountains. They needed faith that would lead them to preaching a message that would eventually overcome Judaism, and they needed miraculous faith, faith to cast demons out of people, faith to raise the dead, faith to speak in tongues, faith faith to prophesy. They needed this kind of faith if they were going to be successful after Jesus was gone. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. And so faith is important. 
They needed faith, and we need faith. We know that. Now, we, we can't move literal mountains. We can't perform miracles, but the Bible does say without faith it's impossible to please God, so we still have to have faith. I'm not saying we don't. Now, third lesson, very quickly. It's a lesson about forgiveness, too. You see that back in Mark 11, Jesus you know, brings up forgiveness at the end of talking about having faith to move that mountain. That shows me that in addition to needing faith, they also needed to make sure they weren't harboring grudges and being bitter in their hearts. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that is absolutely necessary for an effective prayer life. It is something that is absolutely necessary to have a relationship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, hey, you need some great faith, but also understand that, that you can't let bitterness and, and grudges and having an unforgiving heart be in your life because that will hinder you as well. Jesus is trying to prepare them for what's to come. And let me just say this. Maybe right now the apostles don't understand all this. Maybe they don't. But remember, according to Acts 1 and verse 3, how long did Jesus stay with the apostles before he went to heaven? According to Acts 1 and verse 3. That's a long time. Wouldn't you agree? That's over a month. That's over a month. So whatever they didn't get now, he's going to clean all that up for 40 days before he goes back to heaven. And that's why I believe that when they ask this question of, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I think in verse 6, I don't take the view that they're asking about a physical kingdom there. If they didn't get it after 40 days, they just real slow. They, they real slow. Because it says he was with them 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. They got it and they asked that question exactly the way it was supposed to be asked when you understand the, the Old Testament and the language of the prophets. But that's, that's another story. Don't count want to go down that rabbit hole. So, so there are a lot of lessons to take away from the fig tree. Lessons about faith, faith in God, lessons about forgiveness, miraculous faith. Look at question three. Okay, who challenged the authority of Jesus? Somebody tell me, what did you get on, on that? That's verse 27 of Mark 11. Who challenged his authority when they got back to the temple? Yes, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, absolutely, absolutely. They challenged his authority. Remember, this is the day after the temple cleansing. They're asking him, by what authority did you do these things? By what authority did you do what you did yesterday? What is that all about? So they're questioning his authority. They want to know why did he do what he did the day before? Why would they ask him that question? Well, let's just be frank about it. They don't like him. They don't like him at all. He's a threat to their authority. About how old is Jesus at this time? It's a young man. Jesus is in the room. I know he's God. Let's get that off the table. I understand that. But let's think about the fully man part too. If he's in the room right now, I would almost be five years older than Jesus as far as him being 33 in, in earth years. He's a young man. These men don't believe he's God, right? They don't believe that. And so picture this. You got this young 33-year-old kid 
coming in the temple doing all this. And these Sadducees and Herodians are probably between 60 and 80 years old. And they see this kid coming here doing this. 33-year-old guy. One of the things I've seen and I've experienced <laughs> is uh, when you're young, you don't get a whole lot of respect. You just don't. And that's okay. That's part that comes with the territory. And Jesus, young guy, he's 33 years old, not married, no kids. And if you want to be a preacher, you don't get a lot of respect in the church, be about 33 years old with not married and no kids. That'll do it for you. A lot of guys have a hard time getting a job in that situation. And so Jesus, this young guy, coming in here and causing this ruckus as a young man. These older guys don't like that. They don't like that at all. So they don't have much respect for Jesus, and they want to know, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority to come in here and, and try to set things in order? Who gave you that authority? Now, many of you know that I actually did a sermon on this. Remember, a, few, a couple of months ago, this calls it from heaven or from men. And so I won't go into a lot of detail on that now. I would refer you back to that lesson. I go into detail uh, into what happens with that whole conflict because Jesus does set them straight and he quiets them. But now I want to go to question four about the Herodians. Let's talk about the Herodians a little bit. The Herodians were people who are just like their name suggests. They were in allegiance with Herod. Herod. Did the Jews like the Herod family? They did not like the Herod family. <laughs> They couldn't stand Herod, even though the King Herod that uh, tried to kill the baby Jesus, you know, he's called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He actually came from the family of Esau, and he, was, and he had converted into Judaism, but the Jews never liked Herod. They, they couldn't stand him, even though he had, you know, rebuilt the temple, restructured it into this glorious state added so many things onto the temple. I mean, that court of the Gentiles was added by Herod. Herod added that. He, he fixed up their temple in a glorious way, the temple that Ezra, of, the, of Ezra's day, which was plain pitiful. Herod fixed that up, and they still couldn't stand it. They did not like Herod. But the Herodians did. The Herodians were in allegiance and pledged loyalty to Herod. And the Jews, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, they look at the Herod, the Herodians, I'm sorry, as traitors. They couldn't stand the Herodians because they're pledged allegiance to Herod. Now check this out. Go to Mark chapter 3, and maybe you know exactly where I'm going. You probably do. Mark 3, verse 6. Remember when after Jesus healed a man um, on the Sabbath day, a man who had a withered hand, in verse 6 of Mark 3, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with who? <laughs> the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. I've used this example before, and, and it might be kind of extreme, but I don't think it's too extreme. This would be like if you had the Ku Klux Klang and the Black Panthers forming a, an alliance. You know what I'm saying? That's how, that's how radical this is. And all, serious, this is... This is something that would never happen. You know that old saying that goes, 
I'm going to make sure I say it right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know that? You remember familiar with that? That's what's going on here. These two groups can't stand each other. The Pharisees couldn't stand the Herodians. And yet, because we have a common enemy that we both can't stand together, we'll be friends until this is over, until we both can get rid of him. That's what happens. That's what's going on. And, and keep in mind, Mark 3 happens a couple of years before where we're at now. So they had been conspiring together for quite some time to get rid of Jesus. Now, look at this question, and we might not be able to finish this. That's okay. Well, we won't be able to finish it. But I do want to say something. Just give me a minute or two real quick. There's a question that the Herodians come to Jesus and ask. They ask a question about what? Taxes. Taxes. That's something we talk a lot about too, right? Talk about taxes. Who's showing the taxes? Who's not showing the taxes? Talk about taxes. They come, and, and I'll stop with this. Just listen to me on this. They come to Jesus with a question that they think is a catch-22. They feel that no matter how the Lord answers this question, he's going to make somebody mad. He's going to get in trouble. They show him a coin with Caesar's image on it. And they say, should we pay taxes, the poll tax, to Caesar or not? Now, they think this is a brilliant question. And to the average person, it's a tough question to answer. But Jesus is not the average person. He's God. So they come to Jesus saying, what do we do about, what do you think we should do about taxes? Keep in mind, you're at the temple, and you've got all these people around you. And if Jesus says this, if he says, well, we shouldn't pay the tax, the Jews would have liked that, but the Romans, if they heard about it, he would have been accused of treason. But let's say he says we should pay the tax. Well, that sounds good to the Romans, but to the average Jew, this guy can't be the Messiah. He's talking about paying tax to Caesar. We can't stand the Romans. And so they ask a question that they believe, no matter how the Lord answers it, he's going to get in trouble with somebody. We can really hurt his influence right here and right now. Wednesday, Lord willing, we're going to pick up right there and we're going to look at how the Lord answered this question and how he answered another question brought by the Sadducees, which they also thought was a question that would get him in trouble no matter how he answered it. These men are trying to destroy Jesus. They're trying to hurt his influence. We're going to look at how he handled them, Lord willing, on Wednesday. Thank you so much. Thank you.